This week on the Eldritch Lawcast. You're such a hater, Dale. I am. I own it. <laughs> we want people to start making RPGs. Don't become a game designer, folks. I'll contradict what I said earlier. Uh, smooth as a good scotch. Drink responsibly. Maybe recognize finally that it's not all about us. We need to send a message that this cannot happen and somebody has to go. I can't help but feel like I personally may have contributed a little bit to this. All that and more right now. everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one podcast in all of Etheris. They listen to it in Valica, they listen to it in Sharno and Astoya and Burak Empire and the Castanellan provinces and in Marencia and Lysek, just all over the place. They love the Eldritch Lawcast there and why wouldn't they? It's such a great podcast. My name is Ben Byrne uh, and I am here as always joined by James Hake, Sean Merwin, Dale Kingsmill. What songs are on a D&D Christmas album? Okay, it's beginning to look a lot like Fishmen. Rocking around the owlbear. Rudolph the Red-Nosed. Flump. Yes. Speaking of flumps, hang on. <gasps> Hello, I love the flump. Uh, if you have any D&D-themed Christmas songs to add to the list. I'm, I'm still all for O'Damon Oak. D D and 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 D and D and D and D D and D D and Simply having a wonderful TPK in the chat. This is the musical episode of the Eldritch Lawcast. Every cool show does a musical episode. Now that's good radio. Dale, I have to ask you uh, this question coming in from Gethin, loyal listener of the podcast. Uh, which Beholder Iray is your favourite? And if you can't remember any of them, what would you love a Beholder Iray to be able to do? Why would you ever think that I can't remember them? <laughs> I say, Googling them on the side. What's, I'm just trying to double check the name of, I think the most iconic one is my favorite. And that's the, um, the like disintegration beam, right? Mm. Yeah. The, the um, in, in venerating rate, whatever its actual name is, that's the one I'm talking about. I think it is disintegration. When I completely <laughs> wrote the Beholder stat block, because that's just who I am. I can't be stopped. That's the one that I kept. You know, right. I think I just called it a death ray. Well, they have a death ray too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they have all sorts of rays, in fact. Oh, why well, it simply must be the petrification beam. Um, there's, I'm a dungeon master, you know, I, I must have environmental storytelling. There is no more classic. And by classic, I mean classical version of environmental storytelling than a bunch of statues of people in horrified poses as your hero comes to slay the monster. That is true. That is true. I've used a petrification ray in a campaign once as well, just to frighten the party into knowing that what they were facing was something weird. Like if the beholder disintegrated someone, I feel like that would have had a different effect to them uh, petrifying mm. and turning someone to stone instantly. There was just a an extra little kind of uh, flavor of the unnatural there. See, I'm going to go off book here because somehow I want a levitation ray. And you might think, big deal, you put someone up in the air. Well, it, it sort of, it's fun. It lets the characters maybe work around it a little bit. But then what you do is maybe you have the ray hold them up there until the start of the Beholder's next turn. And then at the start of the Beholder's next turn, they turn their anti-magic ray <laughs> on them up in the air. And, oh, well, I can feather fall, I can fly. Oh, no, I can't. <laughs> and and then splat goes the character. Uh, so I just I think that would be fun. And I could see evil beholders just do, doing that to taunt characters. Very nice. The weirder, the better. Mm -hmm. I just think of that bit in Fellowship of the Ring where Saruman points his staff Gandalf. He goes like spinning like a helicopter up into yes. the top of the tower. Right. <laughs> have, you, have you seen Willow, James? It's been like a decade. Yeah. There's, there's a fight sort of near the end of that movie between two sort of um, arch sorceresses that I think of every time I watch that part of The Lord of the Rings. But the the sound effects in Willow is like, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's what is running through my head whenever I see that. <laughs> 
Well, just before we get into the big news this week, because there is big news this week uh, in some manner of speaking, uh, speaking of big things, James Hake, you are going to the big bad con, uh, which yes. is next weekend? It's uh, this weekend. It's uh, I'm leaving in three days. Big Bad Con is a fairly young but potent convention uh, in San Francisco, California. People who I think are putting it on are Ajit George and Anthony Riviera. Uh, Anthony is our writer for episode six of Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse, a great guy. Um, and Ajit George works with the uh, works with a number of very cool humanitarian organizations, particularly in South India, um, and is a great advocate for uh, people of color in the gaming space. And that's kind of, you know, the con, big bad con is open to everyone. But uh, to my understanding, its main mission is to promote diversity within the tabletop gaming space. And that's something that I'm very passionate about as well. It's something that I want for Ghostfire Gaming, something I want for all game companies, is to look beyond the sort of typical roster uh, of white designers who show up in basically every uh, book. But the thing is that when opportunities are not given to young designers who, you know, have not proved themselves, many of whom don't have a ladder up into this space, well, they'll never get the ladder. Mm. Um, so the main thing that I'm heading down to Big Bad Con to do, other than play games, have fun, uh, meet a bunch of new people, is specifically to go to the POC designer meet and greet, a, a big sort of ballroom event that happens at this convention where a lot of uh, designers of color, whether they're writers or editors or graphic designers or mechanical balance people, QA people, playtesters, stuff like that, uh, come to the con and through a, a survey that I and a bunch of other established industry people have filled out, uh, kind of match interests, young designers, untested designers with uh, industry, established industry professionals. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just excited to meet a lot of new people through names of people discovered through Big Bad Con and Ajit. Uh, we've brought people on to fables and other projects like that in the past. And I'm just hoping to continue that tradition and just kind of be a beacon for all of uh, Ghostfire Gaming's needs as we you know, look to the future. We look to uh, who are going to be the young designers, freelancers that we work with in our next five years of games. Is there anywhere else specific that folks will be able to find you while you're at Big Bad Con? Well, I'm not running any games. Uh, I made the decision to come to Big Bad Con pretty late in the game. Um, sure. Even PAX Australia was kind of uh, a hard decision <laughs> for me to make. And so, you know, my schedule is very open. Uh, I'm going to be at that meet and greet, but generally I'm going to be at the con wandering around, saying hello to people, uh, dropping in on games, and uh, just generally checking out what the con has to offer because uh, I don't know too much about it. Other than year after year, I hear Big Bad Con is amazing. Big Bad Con is fantastic. I'm like, okay. Let's find out what this big bad thing is all about. Speaking of conventions, uh, very quickly, our uh, panel from PAX Australia just went live a few hours ago on the uh, Ghostfire Podcast YouTube channel. Um, so that has Dale, James, myself, and Phil Beckwith, uh, who's the project manager for Ghostfire Gaming, standing in for Sean. Um, so go it's check so that out. It's so pretty. The video quality it's is so, so well good. shot. Yes, I know. I like. I don't know whether this comes across like a backwards compliment, uh, like a backhanded compliment. I did not expect it to look as good as it did. It looks really nice. Um, yeah. so, what are you saying? It looks like a Comic-Con panel. It looks yeah. like it's that high quality. It's that professional looking. Uh, I know there's a few people in the chat who came along to that. So thank you very much for uh, coming along. It was a lot of fun. Uh, a sort of panel about uh, how to possibly find your way into the RPG industry. It wasn't necessarily a how-to guide because that, that's a very difficult thing uh, to necessarily provide for people, but just uh, shared experiences and what it's like working on small and larger projects. Uh, and then, of course, Sean, uh, this weekend just passed. Uh, you were at GameholeCon uh, running games there. Uh, what was that like? How'd you go? Uh, GameholeCon is a really great con. It's a, I would call it a small local con with a big guest list. 
Um, mm. So it has sort of the guest list that you would get at a Gen Con or a large PAX, but squished down into a smaller convention. Um, so the panels are great and you can, a normal panel, you might have 400, 500 people in the audience. And at this, there's 30 or 40 people in the audience and you can sit down and rub shoulders with, you know, with the designers whose games you play. So uh, it's lots of fun as a con. Uh, Joe Rosso, uh, who is the writing director for Fables uh, going forward, uh, was there with with me running a preview of the Fables 3 adventure. And we had a rollicking good time. There was one table where at the end of the adventure, two PCs, all of the bad guys and about 300 innocents were destroyed. So, so that so that was good. That that was a that was a good day's work. Yeah, I, I recall hearing about your brutality on yes, Twitter. Yes, and uh, and Joe and I did a panel about what goes into game design for a company like Ghostfire. So we talked not just about game design, but about art and about layout and about all of the things that you may not think about as a as a player or as a game master. But these are things that we think about, and there are also a lot of. Uh, novice game designers there or people looking to get Mm. into game design as freelancers. So we sort of said, now we think about these things, think about the art that needs to happen or the layout that needs to happen as you are a freelancer, because that will give you a leg up uh, with the, you know, with the the work that you're doing, you can think about that as well as, as your mechanics or your story or, or what have you. I think we can kind of see a theme emerging from all of these con appearances, whether it's PAX Australia or Big Bad or uh, even Gamehole Con, where it's like we want people to start making RPGs. Mm -hmm. RPGs, the industry as a whole, is really only as strong as the people doing new and creative things within it. And the the range of experiences that people from all walks of life have uh, brings vital new ideas and new color to the sort of stew as a whole. And so mm-hmm. I, I guess just to like PSA out of the audience, out of people listening right here, if you have an RPG idea, make it and share it on Twitter or share it somewhere, uh, send it to people who you want to critique it. The more it's played and the more you get mentorship and the more you just put yourself out there, uh, the better the world will be for mm-hmm. having your RPG in it. Truly. I mean mm-hmm. that. And, and dare absolutely. I say, there's no better time to, put your stuff out there, then while everyone's in panic mode and D&D's a little bit shaky. (laughs) Yes, Yes, indeed. Well, speaking of panic mode uh, and D&D being a little bit shaky, there is big news, which James Hake sent me, I think, like six hours after we recorded last week's episode. Without Um, fail. We will will never win on on the- uh, Keeping things fresh. The fr- I feel like we're just a little bit ahead of the news cycle, but whatever. Um, uh, so, yeah, all right, lots of news. I just want to preface this a little bit by saying it's big news with very little concrete information that I know of at this point. So there may be a little bit of speculation going into this, keeping in mind that this is business news, which does kind of eke into people's personal business a little bit. Um, mm. So uh, while I think it's fun to speculate on the future of the game, um, I hope that we, we we I don't know, I, I'm just pre- prefacing that in case I accidentally say something that is maybe treading on someone's personal toes, which I don't intend to. Um, but this big news As that I have alluded to. their to, professional toes. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to tread on people's <laughs> professional toes. Tread on those all day. They should be wearing steel cap boots to work, frankly. Um, uh, Ray Winninger. Ray Winninger, who was the executive producer of, sorry, I just wanted to get his job title right, the executive producer of D&D formally, has quietly disappeared from Wizards of the Coast. Now, the facts- That makes as it I, sound like- <laughs> Like he got disappeared. Well, (laughs) well, kind of, because here's the thing. All right, I'm just going to lay out the facts, right? This is what we know is true. Ray Winninger did not announce that he had left Wizards. He quietly removed his uh, role as Wizards from his Twitter bio, which was noted uh, by someone else within the community, I believe David Hartledge. And that is when Ray came out and said, yes, indeed, I am no longer... um, the Wizards of the Coast executive or no longer the Dungeons and Dragons executive producer specifically, which just the, that, that this is where the speculation comes in. That 
turn of events seems a little bit cloak and dagger, uh, as you noted, Dale. The the fact that it, there was no announcement, it was just see if anybody notices that he's no longer listed as the executive producer. Um, and since there's been some speculation in the community whether this was a result of Dan Rawson coming in, uh, I think as vice I've got, got VP there. I'm not sure what that stands for off the top of my head. Um, uh, but also Ray's role seems to have been directly uh, succeeded by Kyle Brink, who's been with Wizards of the Coast for a little while, but suspiciously has a very video game design history professionally as well. So I want, I, I want to jump in and talk for a second please. about the circumstances which led to Ray Winninger entering the D&D team. Um, because I think they actually might shed some light on the subtlety with which he left the team. Um, Ray Winninger has a long history with D&D. If I, if I remember right, he was with TSR. He wrote a series of well-known articles called Dungeon Craft, which survive in plain text on the internet, archived somewhere. Google Dungeon Craft will come up. Um, and since then... He's had a long and storied career as a narrative and experience designer in a lot of other fields. Uh, I'm about 90% sure of this, so maybe don't quote me. But if I remember right, he has done theme park design. He's done really big sort of game designy things outside the field of game design. And he, uh, this is where I get into full speculation. I suspect he was brought into Wizards of the Coast just kind of, he got called up because he's well known within the D&D sort of historical sphere being like, hey, we want some help. We want some guidance moving 5e into the future. And you're a smart guy with history and you have that outsider experience. Let's bring you in for a little bit and see where you can go from there. And if he has all of this outside uh, game design-like experience, but with, you know, bigger properties in Dungeons and Dragons. I don't think that's a slight against D&D to say that. Uh, he would basically be taking a pay cut out of passion and you know, sort of historical love for D&D, being like, yes, okay, I'm going to go in. I'm going to do a little tinkering. I'm going to write the ship, if that's what I'm being asked to do. And then it's like, my work here is done. Farewell. I disappear into the night again. Um, that's the sort I of. I will return to my planet. Just like Homer Simpson through the hedge. Just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. kind of is what happened. To be fair, that's that's the sort of image of Ray, who I've met once or twice, that sure. I have in my head. Is he was called in out of the blue for a very specific task. Um, he did that task, and he was like, "And that is it. Farewell." Um, so. I don't know. I, I feel no real suspicion over the the, the quiet uh, immediacy of his departure. I'm going to go completely the opposite direction that James went. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to say that, well, first of all, I want to talk about Dan Rawson because I think this is a new position that they created yeah. that he is filling. I don't think he is replacing anyone. I think this is a new position that they feel they need filled. And from what I've read of Dan Rawson, while he is uh, you know, an e-commerce and digital uh, executive, that's his focus. From everything I've heard, he is also a gamer. He also played D&D as a kid. He plays D&D with his kids. He was an ex-Marine. He is also uh, a, a Harvard, I believe, graduate with his bachelor's degree and a master's degree from Northwestern. So that is that is a pretty smart pedigree, a pretty tough pedigree. Uh, I believe this is somebody who knows what they're doing, both in terms of business and in terms of games. Uh, so I, 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 f- I fear nothing uh, with, with his hire. I don't think there's any nefarious dealings going on there. Uh, I... I am curious of the departure of Ray. I was keeping an eye on things on Twitter, and I noticed when his uh, Twitter bio changed, and it was right around the time of the Spelljammer release. And I really? think we that remember what happened. We I remember what happened with the Spelljammer release, mm. and I think that um, I think that might have shaken Wizards. And Hasbro a little bit more than than 
has been reported or that has been speculated, right? The, the, the Hadazi race was included in Spelljammer. It turned out that, that, that its lore was a little bit, uh, cringe to say that uh, that's putting yeah. it very mildly. And I think, uh, I think somebody had to end up paying the price for that. Mm. And I may be wrong. It may have nothing to do with that. But with D&D being such a big focus of not just Wizards of the Coast, but of Hasbro going forward, if I was an executive at Hasbro and that happened, I would say we need to send a message that this cannot happen and somebody has to go. Who mm-hmm. would be at the top of that? You know, who was responsible? I'm not saying Ray was responsible, but he was the executive producer of D&D. So if you're going to say the buck stops with me, then that's where the buck stops. Absolutely. I, I think, yeah. Sean, you and I did a great job presenting two very polarized opinions. Right. I'm, I'm very curious to see. Uh, well, we may never know. We may never know what the actual truth of course. It is. But, it, right. but it's, it, it's hopefully cool we never know. Such. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, see, because I thought something, you know, not dissimilar um, to your thoughts, Sean, and I think uh, what was going around on Twitter was was similarly suspicious, not so much about the, the Spelljammer controversy, um, which I hadn't thought of connecting those two, but I didn't know when Ray had removed uh, his title from his Twitter post or his Twitter mm. um, uh, uh, profile, but that because they're moving in a more digital direction specifically that Ray sort of moved out because that was not his personal area of expertise. Whether it's the people that they're bringing in, uh, like Dan Rawson uh, and like Kyle Brink, who, as mentioned, has been at Wizards for a while now but but seems to be taking Ray's former position, have a lot more history in game, like video game design um, and, and the sort of digital space and because that's the direction D&D seems to be heading, and we, we'll dive into that a little bit uh, in a moment, um, that may have contributed to um, to Ray kind of going on their long rest uh, as they very, <laughs> very strategically said uh, what on their Twitter. <laughs> yeah. 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 The longest <laughs> yeah. rest. You go to their longest rest. If you're, ever, if you're ever running like a mafia in D&D, it's just like, ah, we'll give him a long rest, you know. Yeah, we'll give him a long rest. <laughs> yeah. 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 He's going to have the longest. Um, <laughs> we'll teach him about regaining all of his spell slats. <laughs> He's going to get all his hit points back, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. Wait a second. <laughs> Emphasis on the hit. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. uh, fantastic. So related to this, we we in the last couple of weeks have gotten at least three listener emails all asking fundamentally the same question, um, which is looking at the rules for uh, 1D&D and how they seem to be uh, uh, creating more clarity uh, and perhaps complexity around things from fifth edition that had been left a little bit more open and to the the game master's discretion in terms of how easy is it to influence a NPC? Um, uh, well, now there's an influence action that players can specifically ask to take. Um, how does a, you know, exhaustion work even seems a bit more, even though I quite like the new exhaustion rules, they seem a bit more numerical rather than... Um, uh, you know, conceptual in terms of the disadvantages that they impose. Um, all of this to say, are these new rules being moved in this direction because it is easier for a computer to understand those rules than it is the nuances of a GM kind of making rulings on the fly around things like, you know, how much damage does a a chair do as an unarmed you know, or an improvised weapon or whatever it happens to be. Um, and therefore is... D&D moving in a direction where with the 3D virtual tabletop, it may start looking like something from Divinity Original Sin 2's um, 
game master mode or DM mode or, or, or whatever it was called, where basically, um, you know, the game master is putting inputs into the computer as the players kind of describe what they want to do. The players are putting inputs in and the game kind of plays itself out. Okay. So I can't help but feel like I personally may have contributed a little bit to this over the last, you know, couple months or whatever, because I, I am suspicious of that exact thing, right? I am looking at these new rules and going, these seem much more technically direct. Um, and I'm someone who likes there to be space in my RPG design that lets me decide things, um, particularly in areas where human judgment is necessary to kind of make those calls. When you're doing a social encounter, ultimately human judgment is always going to win out over top mm. of, uh, you know, something like saying this is the DC in order to persuade or intimidate. Like these are the only things you can do um, rather than having a conversation, right? Um, so I, I have been the person here saying, oh, they're heading in a digital direction. And I do think that it's true, but I just wanted to mitigate it a little bit as we're heading into this discussion, because now that we've got a very clear example with Ray Winninger and Kyle Brink and all this, this stuff, um, that does look like specifically Dungeons and Dragons heading in a, in a video gamey direction. I'm suddenly aware of every time I've, I've said that about like Wizards of the Coast people, you know, someone hired for Wizards of the Coast who has a background in video games. But I just want to like backtrack on those things from previous episodes and maybe recognize finally that it's not all about us. <laughs> like, you know, you go to the, dun the the Wizards of the Coast website and they're like, these are our games. And it's like five Magic the Gathering games and then D&D, &D, right? So some of that is going to be about the fact that Magic the Gathering is a huge presence and they do sure. have digital platforms and video game esque uh, products in Magic the Gathering already. So I like I'm just saying before we get into it, like don't entirely panic about it. I don't think that we can ever reach a point where D and D can run without a DM, right? That that's never going to happen because it won't be D and D anymore. Um, you would have to completely eradicate something like the social pillar of play in order to have a computer be able to run it. And for for players to have that that freedom that is um, the kind of core draw card that tabletop RPGs have over a video game, um, that freedom can't be replicated uh, in in a computer, I, I don't believe. AI <laughs> would have to AI, be maybe, real good. Yeah. <laughs> Once Cortana is running games, then maybe we can talk. Didn't Amazon Alexa or something have a Alexa run D&D command at one point? <laughs> didn't, didn't that? And she would do a very, very simple choose your own adventure novel. I remember this being news about a year or two ago. It was cute, but it wasn't d and It wasn't right? a full game master. Degree. That's the thing. It's that difference between a choose your own adventure, which has elements that are like a tabletop RPG versus a tabletop RPG where you actually can choose yeah. to do something completely not thought of. I love to sit with the, the Gragnardi gamers that I play with or that I am used to, you know, have worked with in the past and tease them that they will not sell paper copy books. It's all going to be digital <laughs> and see their heads spin around and pea soup spit out of their mouth as they froth <laughs> at the idea that this would ever happen. But, uh, but I, I agree with Dale completely. Um, I think, I think we have to separate digital from e-commerce when we talk about these things. So e-commerce is a whole different uh, business than a digital game. We will never, as Dale said, we will never have a, a Dungeons & Dragons game without a game master, without a dungeon master, because we love the story element. We used to joke that fourth edition, you, the DM could walk away and the players could finish the combat on their own. Uh, and in some cases, it almost did work out that way. But then the DM would have to come back to to tell the story and to ask the question, what do you do now? And I hope that's that's always the case. It might be a bit much to be like, is the DM going to become obsolete? But in trying to expand the options that folks have for playing role-playing games online and with virtual tabletops and all that jazz it can simultaneously restrict what is possible 
because, you know, let's say uh, I think that going off memory and, and don't quote me on this, that the uh, sales tactic for the 3D virtual tabletop that Wizards are developing has reportedly uh, uh, been that they will sell adventures in packs and you'll get everything you need to run that adventure uh, in the virtual tabletop. And then you'll get all the pieces from that adventure as well to be able to piece together your own dungeon made from that thing, right? And then as you buy more adventures and more packs, you expand your sort of repertoire and and what's in your digital library to be able to create different dungeons. But for me, that's uh, extremely unsatisfying because I like to homebrew uh, dungeons. I like to homebrew scenarios. I like to homebrew monsters uh, quite a lot. Uh, And it's why I don't use physical terrain. I use a whiteboard or or a wet erase mat with markers because then an encounter can happen literally anywhere, right? Whether it's once you're using a virtual tabletop that's relatively inflexible and it looks like this uh, 3D one will be that at least in some capacity, suddenly I'm restricted because I want to have them explore a a mummy tomb that looks very sort of uh, Egyptian and all I have is these, you know, dark grey swamp dungeon tiles because that's all that is currently available on the store or whatever it happens to be. Um, and so I think that there's some anxiety in the the restriction, like restriction in that sense, but also restriction in how people access D&D because more people are using D&D beyond, I think, organically, and that's fine. But wizards potentially have that uh, that ability to kind of, you know, really restrict how people play D&D in terms of, Sure, your books won't burst into flame suddenly when a new book is released. Volos and and um, Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes didn't spontaneously combust when Monsters of the Multiverse released, but they did redo all those monsters through D and D Beyond. And while you can still access the original versions, you cannot access. Um, uh, you know, it, there is potential for them to just kind of rewrite what they want the game to be and reintroduce it through those systems. So if you've tied yourself into D&D Beyond or some sort of video gamey digital um, offering, you're kind of stuck to the whims of what Wizards want to do with that platform going forward. Yeah. Beyond that as well, the same thing when we talk about these new rules, right? The more you clarify rules so that they can be understood and run by a computer, the more you restrict what what those rules exactly. are able yeah, yeah. to to replicate. That's just something that that happens a little bit, and that I do agree with, and that I think, sure, go ahead and panic about it. <laughs> this brings, I think, uh, this brings us to a broader argument about the nature of RPGs that I've seen play out online a lot over the past couple of years, particularly within the indie space, then people who have criticisms of D&D to levy. Um, And it's about RPGs as a complete or incomplete game. I might have even talked about it a little bit before on this very podcast. But the thing about a video game is if you were to purchase a big budget AAA video game and they at any point said, and now you make it up, you'd be pissed. You would be rightfully (laughs) angry because like I paid 60 USD. I paid a hundred Australian dollars for this video game. It's a triple A video game. You learned our prices while you were here. 120 if it's a PS5 game. 120 Australian dollars. (laughs) It's ridiculous. You're shelling out a big amount of money to uh, a large company to play a game and they tell you it's not finished. They tell you, not not only is there not DLC that you can buy to round out the experience, you have to make it. Not not you can make it. You have to make it. There are some people who's, who really get up in arms about that, and I think there's a pretty solid argument for why they would. Like I, I paid a lot of money for this game. It had better be good. It had better be finished. Um, and yet, what we're talking about, people who love D and D for its incompleteness, for its openness for its ability to inspire creativity and in fact have a requisite need for creativity brought to it by the players um see that there's a completely other side to this argument once you complete D, it's not really D anymore and that's that's how it goes for a lot of different rpgs there's some rpgs out there that are complete games but they're more like you know descent 
where it, I would not play Descent campaign style. I would not play, you know, Descent is a dungeon crawl style board game where all the bits and bobs are laid out for you and there's kind of a beginning and an end and each encounter is really tightly designed to use its game mechanics and like they, the designers kind of know every step of the way where you're going to go, how you're going to get there. I wouldn't play Descent for session after session after session after session the way I would D&D because part of the D&D experience for me is that spontaneity it's that it's that improvisational aspect of it both as a player and as a dm i love being surprised as a dm and if i have every card in my hand while i'm running from my table uh i i just would not like that as much as the alternative it, one thing that is interesting especially considering what ben was saying um about you know the the buying of stuff online digital mm. digital products is that um particularly if we do think that this is going in a direction of um, lessening to some degree the role of the DM. One thing that is is interesting to bring up there, it's not necessarily an argument for or against that being the case, but currently dungeon masters are the ones who buy the most D&D products. Mm. If, if you are mm. buying a ton of D&D books or accessories, you are probably the DM. Um, yeah. And what is interesting to think about is the possibility that um, if they go in a terrible direction and require every player to buy their own book, their own copy of the book in order to participate in the digital play, which I hope they don't, that just seems like a bad idea. Um, but if they did do that, they could, from their attempt to transform it into an economy where the players are buying most of the stuff rather than it being the DMs. And then that would that would lead to um, possibly choosing to lessen the role of the DM in the game. But I think it's unlikely. I don't know. That sounds like the nut that RPG companies have been trying to crack for decades now is how do you get four fifths of your gaming group player base to actually buy your product instead of one fifth who buys mm -hmm. everything? Mm -hmm. I think it if might be the dream. It. If they could do it, they would do it. But I think the trouble is that you've always got Paizo and Pathfinder waiting in the wings going like, everything's available for free online. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose, but even Paizo and Pathfinder are doing 5e content right now. Like, I feel like there's a lot of, um, I feel like the reason there's so much anxiety at the moment within the community is because D&D 5e has become so dominant even over other fantasy role-playing games like Pathfinder in the last sort of five years um, and it's extremely dominant on the industry because there's a lot of third-party companies that kind of rely on 5e um, having its open game license. Um, and if, you know, we've kind of talked about from a, a consumer's point of view, you know, they uh, are anxious around like how will they interact with Dungeons & Dragons? How will they be able to purchase their products? What does ownership mean when the when the uh you know majority of your content becomes digital rather than um physical um and there's just so much uncertainty about which way wizards or hasbro are going to turn and so like on all sides it just feels like the industry is like collectively holding its breath for the next two years to be like and you know, like, what what is this going to look Where like? Do we land. It's, What's the landscape? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's incredibly exciting and yet uh, anxiety inducing at the same time, depending on where you are uh, within the industry. It's more exciting when you're not a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is truer words, my friend. Well, yeah, I've I've, I've spent the last forty years hearing how. The com you know the computer is going to replace us, and in entertainment will never be the same. And games will disappear, and movies will disappear, and everything will disappear, and everything will be horrible. And it's sort of the same thing with D and D, right? Every new edition, this is going to be the end of D and D. And somehow we're still here playing and talking about and enjoying or hate playing uh, these games. And and life life will go on and there will be something for us to do to make our creativity shine in this little uh, hobby of ours. Something that I think is worth remembering at times like this, if you if you feel so stressed out about it, is just remember that plays still exist. Books still exist. Movies didn't kill plays. TV shows didn't kill books. We're all, it's all still here. And maybe a new prime form of, you know, um, 
a, a new medium will take over as like the dominant form, but the thing that you love is never going to completely vanish. It, stuff doesn't die like that, even if we we like to uh, sort of catastrophize and suggest that video did indeed kill the radio star. Um, you know, people still listen to the radio. Podcasts still exist, like this very one here. Although, I don't believe you. Well, we also put it to YouTube and we have people watching us right now on Twitch. So, But they might have their windows minimised. You don't know. Um, anyway, speaking of minimising things, you don't always need to kill monsters in combat. Um, you can just minimise the threat that they pose uh, in the narrative that you're telling. And that relates to Gethin's question, uh, emailed podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Gethin did. Thank you. Uh, smooth is a good scotch. Uh <laughs> Drink responsibly. Um, uh, Gethin is asking about uh, crafting alternative wing conditions into combat other than the monster's death. Uh, I think we've mm. mentioned it a few times on this podcast, uh, and Gethin's looking for directed advice um, for providing that um, and also hinting uh, or how do you hint slash incentivize players to engage with those alternative wing conditions um, rather than just reduce the monster to zero hit points because- the most favorable condition to impose on an enemy is dead. I want Ben to tell his story that I heard while in Melbourne about um, the ghost your players had to um, deal with, uh. that you you specifically mentioned that the ghost had been defeated by other adventurers before, but it just always sort of re-manifested. I want you to tell that story because I think it's a good example of this. Okay. Well, don't mind if I do. Uh, thank you, Dale. Um, uh, my approach to ghosts, um, which I did a video on, you can find it on Ghostfire uh, Gaming YouTube. Anyway, my approach to ghosts is very tied in with the supernatural, as in the TV show, uh, way of dealing with them, which is that ghosts cannot be destroyed by reducing them to zero hit points. They cannot be destroyed um, by uh, attacking them. They will just reform and come back, and that can take several hours or it can take several years for the ghost to reform. But to destroy it, you need to find its earthly remains and destroy those or potentially finish the ghost's business. Um, and so there were two ghosts uh, that I had. One was a murder mystery uh, with a lake and one was uh, a wraith um, that haunted a farm. It was based on like the witch's noon wraith. There you go. Um, and the idea was that these wraiths, uh, let's let's talk about the Rizalka from the from the pond. Basically, the idea was that it it drowns people who come down to the water, um, like any classic kind of like you know individual in a pond. Come swim in the waters; the water's fine. Ha ha! Drown you. Um, like kangaroos. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You 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 have learned so much over the last <laughs> few weeks. Um, they do do that. Um, so the idea was that the party could attempt to swim down to the bottom of the lake and uh, recover the bones of the person who had died, like I think 10, 20 years earlier, and destroy those remains to destroy the ghost. But because the ghost is layering on top of their remains, they would have to fight the ghost in their lair where they are strongest. And when it's underwater, uh, it's an incredibly dangerous fight for the party to engage with, especially if you don't have someone who can breathe underwater or a swimming speed. Um, and the idea was that it was really murky as well. It was kind of like a muddy kind of creek and so visibility was really poor um the same with the noon wraith the idea was that their remains were buried under a tree on the farm um but if you went to fight the noon wraith it was an incredibly difficult battle um in both these circumstances the victim didn't deserve necessarily to die there was a kind of story around how they passed away uh in the circumstances of the noon wraith they had been um warning, this is slightly graphic, um, burned alive uh, on their farm uh, as punishment from a local kind of mobster guild. Um, and the uh, Rizalka had been drowned kind of uh, as a murder mystery. Nobody knew who drowned them. They gave them the log rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they restored all their hit points. Um, uh, made them resistant them to fire to damage, zero. if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so the idea is that, yes, the party can just go fight, recover these remains, but it's an incredibly dangerous battle to do. Or 
they can investigate the village, they can investigate um, the mob and try to bring those people to justice, which in the case of the mob sends the party on this relatively large quest where they're hunting down the five individuals who uh, killed the, the, the person who became the ghost, which those five individuals altogether are, are very formidable as a threat, but you split them up and kind of take them out one by one, they're much less dangerous. Um, and it just resulted in uh, a couple of really formidable but also beautiful moments of role play within the those two campaigns. The reason I, I use both these examples is because they had kind of slightly different endings um, but I think created a really satisfying story both ways. In the case of the Rizalka, they found who murdered the Rizalka, took them down to the water, and this person is, like, terrified of the ghost. They're like, no, please don't, don't do this. You don't know what you're doing. And the party bring this person to the Rizalka, say, here, we found the the murderer, and the water swells up almost like a little tidal wave, grabs onto this person. They get dragged into the the lake and you see the bubbles on the surface for a few moments and then it disappears and that person has has been drowned and the ghost is never seen again. Um, whether as in the case of the Noon Wraith, they went down, they hunted down the individuals. There was a paladin in the party who made it their personal quest to get justice for this Noon Wraith. And then came back to the farm and instead of being this grisly kind of scorched up appearing corpse, um, the person appeared as they did when they were alive because they felt much more peaceful and without a word of actual dialogue, just description. Um, the paladin basically sits on the root of the tree where the person, where the ghost is buried. Uh, she sits next to him and they just wait for the sun to rise. And as the sun kind of comes up and, and the light shines over the farm, uh, her form just fades away and she's gone. And it was just chef kiss kind of end, uh, particularly to a dark fantasy campaign because it's so... Uh, bittersweet, you know. Um, so basically, to, to break it down to answer Gethin's questions, make the fights hard. <laughs> make it <laughs> undesirable to fight. <laughs> if you make, you know, if you just overtune it and make the CR a little bit higher, then the party will fight, be incentivized. Very little reward. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I was going to tackle this from a totally different angle because this is such a great response to this from a narrative point of view. I want to look at this from a sort of tactical miniatures game point of view, because that's kind of the other side of the D&D token. And all of my experience in this comes from playing video games, tactical video games like Fire Emblem or Final Fantasy Tactics or things like that, because games like that often have objectives that are not simply kill them all. Um, they, they vary things up. And because they're sort of grid-based, I think there's a pretty good analogy to be found here. Because there are discrete spaces on a map, uh, reach a location is a perfectly good resolution mm -hmm. to a combat. And it, it that dovetails really well with your uh, hard combats uh, idea, because that's the kind of the nugget of wisdom at the core uh, of any discussion here is that you need to disincentivize fighting. You need to find some way to make fighting more uh, challenge than it's worth to do so. And in tactics games, typically the way they do that is by having a lot of bad guys rather than one really strong sort of narratively compelling monster like your wraiths, uh, you know, a, a late game fire emblem map will have, you know, 50 dudes against your army of, you know, eight to 12 guys. And if you're trying to capture a castle or escape, just eliminate one boss monster or something like that, then you can really make the challenge, not just, hey, look at how tough this one guy is. It's there's a lot of terrain and circumstances and enemy waves and other things that are all putting pressure on you to reach the, the actual objective as fast as you possibly can without sort of dawdling and getting overwhelmed. Every type of battle with a win condition that's other than killing has its own problems. Uh, you know, getting mm. from point A to point B, one of the most fun encounters I ever had, it was simply, you need to get across this huge field. Uh, and there were monsters and traps and all sorts of things in the way. But you need to be very, very clear. Do not 
do not hesitate as the game master to let them know in no uncertain terms, this is the point of this combat. This is the point of this encounter. Mm, Because if you don't be very explicit with that direction, default for most players is I'm going to hit the thing that's right in front of me as many times as possible. And sometimes even if you are explicit about what the goal is, that tendency to want to fight will still overwhelm the players uh, and force them for some reason to use the sword and the spell and the the sneak attack on their sheet rather than doing what the point of of the the actual point of the the encounter is. So I want to press do, the button. Yes, <laughs> press if the attack you, button. If you do something like you must stop this ritual from happening. Uh, the first thing the players are going to do is say, well, the easiest way to stop the ritual is to kill everybody involved. Um, so you need to not even make the combat very difficult, but make it clear that fighting is not the best way to do this. And again, you can come right out and say it. You can come right out and say it as the game master. You can try to be subtle and put it in to clues either before this encounter or during the encounter. But again, subtlety is sometimes lost when the bloodlust surges (laughs) in your players. Uh, So be as transparent as possible. uh, And then you can sort of have fun. Another way to think of it is think of the CR of the thing that you're trying to get the players to do and just count that thing as a monster. To stop the ritual, would it take six successful skill checks or a certain amount of damage or pushing the right button at the right time. Well, if it would take the the party six shots to kill one of the monsters, then it should take six shots to kill that, that encounter. And that way you can balance it, but you can set it up so that they can't even touch the monsters until this other thing is done. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, it's one way to do it. There are many other ways to do it. But what's also important is to play test, to see if the way you've set it up works or if if your clues are too subtle or if the way you've gated the the, the encounter works or not. Uh, it's always important to do that as well. Yeah, it, everything Sean just said is exactly up the alley of what I was going to say. So the the thing that Ben has described is like the ideal situation, right? It's this nuanced approach where you're not stopping your players from choosing to fight. They they have that option that is always available to them, but you're giving them a reason to want to do something else. You're tempting them to. I always think that tempting players to do something is more effective than threatening them to not do something because if you challenge your players and say this fight's just too strong for you, they're going to want to prove you wrong, right? Mm. Um so so Ben's is like a beautiful nuanced setup. It's it's wonderful. I can only dream of running stuff like that. Um, but then on the other end of the spectrum, Sean's right. You, you can cut the corner and just tell your players, here's what's up. <laughs> These waves of bad guys are not going to stop coming, right? You can, it's, it's that old um, pearl of wisdom that the, the game of D&D is not what happens at the table. It's the memory of it afterwards when you're talking with your friends in the, in the car park. It's, it's, okay to break the immersion for a bit and just be mm. direct with your mm. players. I'm, I'm reminded of a, a Dimension 20 episode of, I think it was Unsleeping City, where the goal was you're waiting for a train. A train is going to arrive and it's going to take you away from here. But in the meantime, you're going to get lots of waves of bad guys coming at you. But they oh, were the told- classic elevator. Yeah, they were told directly at the beginning of combat, here's what you can do to speed up the train's arrival. You can take these other actions that aren't combat and it will- improve your chances of, of that, you know, end sort of what's it called in, in game design that, that thing of like, this is the thing that triggers the end of the encounter. There's a word for it. I don't know what it is. The end game. Um, Yeah, sure. Yeah. I'll take it. (laughs) Um, you know, this is this, an explicit end game that isn't every enemy dies and here's how you can achieve that thing. Um, A victory condition. Yeah. Yeah. Win condition. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, chat. Um, but no, that that sort of thing of being explicit, telling them what the difference is between this encounter and any other encounter where they would just fight to the death. Uh, sometimes it's just worthwhile to do that if you don't have time or think that your party won't necessarily be amenable to the to the more subtle and nuanced approach. Yeah. 
For sure. I think there's another uh, subtle and nuanced approach that we can glean from looking at the past. D&D inspired a lot of video games to have experience points. Experience points started in early D&D and video games picked it up. And video games gave you experience points for killing monsters. We can see that as early as Final Fantasy 1 in the 80s. But D&D didn't always used to give you experience points for killing monsters. Its incentive system was different. Its incentive system was based around gold and treasure. Uh, and so there may be, and I, I think this is maybe a little overstated, but it's worth saying, it may be worth it if you want to create other victory conditions to make it so that fighting isn't such a good thing. Players measurably numerically like empirically get stronger the more monsters they kill if you play with xp in play um so if you make it so that the way that they improve in advancement is something other than fighting then they may consider an option that isn't fighting last question here um uh, which comes from james but not that one uh who also emailed podcast at ghostfiregaming.com uh, get your emails in and we will answer them here on the podcast uh they had a very simple question it was just about organization of notes uh, and info about encounters and dungeons as a game master how do you organize your info your descriptions your room descriptions or, or kind of descriptive text your puzzles uh, your layout of a of a room or a dungeon or an encounter counter uh, how many monsters are there where do you put your stat blocks all of that sort of stuff uh, on a macro and micro scale and just for the game designers in the uh in the room i more so mean or i think james really more so means as a game master more so than necessarily like as a writer of of adventures because those two things might be slightly different unless i'm writing it for publication i have a monster stat block and that's all um because i'm just going to have some fun uh, if I'm going to publish something, uh, it's, t- it's terrible. <laughs> I know, but uh, what I, how I would do it would be anything I need to know above the descriptive text that I'm going to read to tell me what's in the room. That's important for the players to know beforehand beneath that. Any monsters? Well, actually let's switch that around uh, description of what's there. And then what comes first? Is there a big feature that I need to know about first? Is the monster coming right at them when they enter the area? Put the monster first. Is there a trap they need to deal with before the monster comes? Put the trap first. So I do it in the order of what the characters are going to encounter. Same, 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 same. Um, I'm probably a little bit more um, neurotic than Sean when it comes to having notes prepared. <laughs> I've tried so many different, so I'm I'm a really forgetful DM. I have tried, you know, post-it notes that you pull down once you've read the thing that you need to read. I always forget something that I have to mention that's important for me to mention. The, the system I've had the most success with is I just have my notebook and I write out, any, and I've mentioned before that I write my own box text and I'll have, you know, A, the first thing I expect them to encounter and I'll write out the thing that I want to be sure that I say about that. And then I'll do them in the order that I expect the players to encounter them. If they skip something, I skip over it. You know, any I, rearranging gets hard, but, you know, this is so far it's working okay. Um, write them in the order that I expect them to encounter them. Any DCs are right there kind of in that section that I need to um, deal with and then add a separate part of the notebook, I just have my uh, stat blocks for monsters written out sort of separately and really short, brief stat blocks. I mean, I've I've railed against official stat blocks before because <laughs> I think that they're in a confusing order and there's much more information than you actually need. So I just have my um, very abbreviated and homebrewed stat blocks that, that are like, at some point during the combat, make sure that you do this cool thing so that it's memorable but the rest of it's like super duper simplified. I, I'm really working my brain here because I don't think I've run a game in months. My home group is on hiatus. I was just out of the country. This is relatable. It hurts. Uh, this is the the pain of a game designer. Don't become a game designer, folks. I'll contradict what I said earlier. You'll never have time to play <laughs> games ever again. <laughs> um, no, but you know, thinking back, my my approach varies wildly based on how story relevant an encounter is. I'll often have encounters that begin with a map and I'll, I'll look at a map and I'll think of, you know, I want to use this map and then everything will kind of come together when 
I want to deploy the map. I'll have encounters where I'm like, I've got a monster stat block and everything will kind of come together when I want to deploy the monster stat block. Sometimes there's a character, a villain, and I'll think of the villain's motivations and all that. And oftentimes the map and the monster stat block will kind of come together when it's needed. Um, But that is because that's not a system I particularly like, but it's a system that I've had to develop because I... the reason why I put my group on hiatus is because prepping D&D has started to feel like work for me. Yeah. And so the more low prep I could become, the less playing the game felt like my job. Um, and so I would come up with one kind of rallying point for myself, like a map or a stat block or a character. And then I would just rely upon the knowledge of having run this game for 10 years and spent a lot of time picking it apart Uh professionally to kind of guide me in the moment. I'd love to do very, very intricate sort of dioramas of things and plan out tactics for monsters and different things fun. that happen on different turns. It's so <laughs> cool. It, it it appeals to something game designerly inside me, but as it's it's not going to happen until it's I've had a not- real long vacation, I think. Yeah. I just don't know that it works for me. Yeah. Mm. I suppose, I mean, I don't know whether this is also worth saying in terms of organization, right? Because that's that's kind of the heart of the question. I mm-hmm. make all my notes and stuff ahead of time, super like over the top complicated in, <sighs> in orders that don't make sense in a separate notebook. And then ahead of the actual session, I transfer the information that I actually need into a different <laughs> notebook in the order that I anticipate it will happen. And Mm -hmm. there's much less of it and it's much more simplified. But I start Mm -hmm. with chaos and then I figure it out. I can't sing the praises of uh, OneNote highly enough. I think it is an excellent piece of software. I thought you were saying I can't sing the praises of OneNote. No, 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 I love OneNote. Uh, I think (laughs) the reason uh, that I love uh, OneNote so much is because it breaks down in terms of its pages to folders to whatever it is, you know, groupings like a dungeon does. And so you Mm. can, you know, create a folder and that's your dungeon, and then the dungeon has, like, categories. And so I might have all my stat blocks in one category and then all the rooms of the dungeon in another. And then you go to your pages and each page describes a separate room or part of the dungeon, Um, sometimes with the stat blocks in it. I'm going to make a very guilty admission here, which is that uh, when I'm using a PDF monster manual, um, like uh, like the Monster Grimoire, for example, or something like that, I will screenshot the stat block and then just put that into the OneNote so that it's there for me. I actually love love the way that uh, how dare i i love the way that monster stat blocks are are set out or at least my eye has become used to reading them in the way that they're set out um so if they're in any other format i uh, I can't use them um and then yeah from there it's very similar to i think what sean described which is uh in dale for that matter like my own box text but it's broken down into dot points rather than like solid box text so that there's room for me to kind of improvise and like tell the story to the players rather than just reading it. Uh, Then whatever's in the room, whether it's monsters most important or whether it's, you know, a trap or something like that. And then the last note, if it's relevant to the room, is always like the treasure that's in the, like what can they walk out of this room with? Uh, And then under that, maybe some screen grabs of the stat blocks if there are monsters in this room. So it's all on one page. Um, And I am notorious with myself for over-prepping. Like James said, it's like, Mm. it's become like work for me, but it's also the way that I love to play the game, which is basically design a whole dungeon and then just knock the dominoes down as the players go through the dungeon rather than feel like I'm scrambling to make stuff up as they walk through preloading the work you're doing a ton of work early on so that when you're running the game you hopefully don't have to do much work (laughs) because your brain's already doing lots of stuff you know this is completely off topic it has nothing to do with what we've been talking about but um a sort of alchemy happened in my brain during this topic dale you were mentioning really compressed monster stat blocks ben over the past couple of weeks you've been talking to me about the monster hunter and the sort of the supernatural series book of little monster bits and also thinking about how things like volo's guide often are you know they're written ostensibly in first person by a lore character with their little notes and stuff stuck in the margins and it made me wonder what if 
like like you think, Dale, we took a monster stat block and we sucked all of the like uh, unnecessary verbiage out of it, made it the crunchiest little mechanical nugget we possibly could. You know, take a full page stat block, shrink it down to a quarter page if we could by just taking out all the words and just leaving kind of the numbers. So like you you know what AC means. You've read the introduction of the monster manual. You know what all these things are. This is it. Sort of like the the third edition's really tight inline stat blocks. And then for all of the abilities that need a little bit more explanation, like why does the tentacle attack have extra acid damage on it or something like that? Have that sticky note written in that first person style. Draw a big arrow from the note to the stat block and say, when I fought the great tentacula of Carcoon, <laughs> it scalded me with its tentacular acid. Hey chat, if if anyone of you makes a book like that, would you link me to it? Would you would you make like a four page monster manual exactly like that with really tight stat blocks and really detailed in world monster hunter writings and just send it to me? I want to see what that would look like. Speaking of James wanting to see what things would look like, I'm sure he wants to see what the world away from his computer monitor would look like at this very moment. <laughs> so therefore. <laughs> We are going to draw this episode of the Eldritch Lawcast uh, to a close. Uh, thank you, Twitch chat, for hanging out. Twitch.tv, sorry, slash ghostfire underscore official. Um, otherwise, if you're listening to this on YouTube or through an audio platform like Spotify, make sure to give it a rating, like, subscribe, all that stuff. Thank you so much. We just hit a 1,000 subscribers on the podcast channel uh, as of yesterday. Um, so thank you so much. I actually literally watched that tick down from the last couple of subscribers. Uh, and with all that being said, spread the word of the Eldritch Lawcast because we will be back next week. I've been Ben Byrne here with Dale Kingsmill, James Hake, Sean Merwin, and we will be, and Sean Merwin's flump, and we will be back <laughs> next week. Bye. Goodbye. 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 Goodb